0: podcast thank you for tuning in through spotify itunes podcast addict anchor.fm if you are watching here on youtube please do not forget to click that subscribe button just below the screen here it's the color red if you can't see colors it says subscribe so click that button with the bell for continued notifications so you don't miss anything that is published that is posted to the channel uh, today what I want to do is I want to talk about 2 Peter 3, specifically verse 12, um, and I want to talk about the uh, uh, the preterist interpretation of 2 Peter 3. Now, a, a couple of qualifications, as is usually proper to do before a video like this. Um, when I say preterist, I don't necessarily mean hyper-preterist or full preterist, I just mean those who see the majority of biblical prophecy uh, as being already passed. Uh, something that has already occurred, um, and um, and uh, not not those who say that the resurrection of the body has a, a already occurred, but those who say that the majority, accepting that and the final return of Christ, the majority of Bible prophecy has, has already occurred. So uh, that's what I mean when I say preterist in this con- in this uh, context. Um, the other thing that I would like to say is, you know. And this is this is true, I think, more so historically. Historically, you'll have Bible interpreters like John Gill, for example, who will be preteristic in one text and not so preterist in another text. So um, that 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 term preterist, and this even goes for the big three, right? Amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism. I think we expect, uh, you know, uh, theologians to fit in either one of those three. And it, that just doesn't work. Uh, those categories are modern categories that are usually anachronistically imposed upon those who have gone before us. And, and, and really, they're not very good categories, really. I mean, just in terms of functionality, they don't seem to be very good categories because they, they're difficult to apply accurately. Um, and so, uh, and I think that that's even more true when you look at history than it is now. Um, I think, I think now people kind of try and fit in one or the other of those grooves and, uh, and they, they tend to accept, you know, kind of the body of, of, uh, of work related to any one of those. Uh, and usually it's a, it's, it's a more contemporary, you know, take on, on that position, this or that position. So, um, you know, you're gonna have you're gonna have Bible interpreters in the past that just don't that just don't fit in any one category very neatly, and and that's the same with with a more specific uh, nomenclature like preterism or or preterist, uh, right? So like John Gill, for example, is very preterist in Matthew 24. He sees Matthew 24 as being entirely the whole of the chapter entirely past, um, and you know Charles Spurgeon and uh, John calvin are are partially preteristic with regard to that passage. they see part of it as being past and and part of it as being future. Second um, Peter three, you know John Owen has a, a preterist view of second Peter three twelve. John Gill doesn't, even though John Gill has a preterist view of matthew twenty four he does not have a preterist view of of second Peter three. Now you got to remember these guys are are, I, I, I try to make the assumption that these guys were better exegetes than us, um, and I think that's the case because of um, our our modern distractions, our modern circumstances, the way we've been educated, in comparison to you know how they've been edu- how they were educated from a very young age. You know, I was just talking to some friends the other day, and I said you know one of the things that I said was you know, there's a, there, there is a big difference, whether we like to accept it or not, between our maturity level, corporate maturity level today, than the corporate maturity level of the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, and the reality is, is back then they were reading Latin when they were 12 years old. They were churchmen, considered fine churchmen by the time they were 16, 17 years old. They were married by the time they were 18. They had their household rolling by the time they were 19, 20 years old. All right. Uh, that just is, is not typically the circumstance today. So, Whenever I uh, interact with these guys, I, I try to go in making the assumption that they're better exegetes than I am. And they're better exegetes than the lion's share of today's exegetes. I'm not saying they're better without qualification, but I think in large part they they are. Um, so w- we have to remember that as we look at them, what I was trying to get at with that point is that as we look at them... Uh, we need to be careful not to just brush their works to the side and, and say, you know, that guy didn't know what he was talking about. We need to carefully consider what was going on in the in the backdrop. And, and we also don't need to hastily accept any one theologian's interpretation, any one theologian's interpretation, because it might be the case that when you start looking around at the, you know, uh, the milieu uh, that that person was situated within that you'll find them to be in the min- minority, right? So um, doesn't mean they're wrong. Uh, but it, it does it is cause for some suspicion. So um, let's go ahead and do this. I'll bring up the screen. And uh, if you notice on the screen, I have Job 14 on this side. and on this side I have 2 Peter 3. Now we're going to begin early on here in 2 Peter 3 because I want to take some notes uh um i want to make some observations that that's going to help us by the time we get down to second peter 3:12 so this is the text that we're that we're going to be uh hurtling toward um now before maybe it would be best if i lay out the dilemma i think that's what i'll go ahead and do and then and then we'll and then we'll go ahead and and move through the text uh, on our own um so the dilemma is that if you look at verse 12 here um there there and this is more popular of an interpretation today than it has been in the past uh because of the kind of uptick in uh premillennialism or post-millennialism, I'm sorry and um the influence of uh you know uh Gary Demar and and um, David Chilton and 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 some of those uh, individuals. Uh, really, it, it got its. I think it it started really becoming popular. one of the one of the um, uh, igniters uh, was you know uh, Greg Bonson um, and it kind of it, R J Rushdoony and it kind of came up together with presuppositionalism and uh, theonomy. It's always grown together with those two other threads. And so um, so with, with the popularity and the, the progress of those positions, you, you see this interpretation more often. But the interpretation is this, that 2 Peter 3.12 is referring to the abolition of the Old Covenant, uh, particularly as that abolition is consummated in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Consequently, in 70 A.D., uh, one of the persons that that they will reach back and appeal to that held this position or a similar position is John Owen. Uh, it's now I've said before um, on on many different occasions that it's it's not safe to disagree with John Owen. There are places that I disagree with John Owen. John Owen was paedo Baptistic. I'm not. I'm a Baptist um this would probably be another area that I would I would diverge from John Owen's um, uh, interpretation of of scripture. And um, but on the level, it's it's really just not safe to hastily disagree with John Owen. I think he's uh, was is if not the best uh, theologian,, uh, you know, when we're talking about confessionally reformed, uh, theology, he's certainly up there. He's certainly up there. And uh, I don't think you have to be a fanboy of John Owen to admit that. Uh, I think that even during his lifetime, uh, it was thought to be um, you know, John Owen was thought to be an intellectual standard uh, uh, of sorts during that time. Uh, he was a he was a trusted um, teacher of the faith, a trusted, Doctor of Divinity, and uh, and so we need to we need to understand that, and and disagreeing with with him is is never safe. Mainly because he's always working, usually within the stream of orthodoxy. And he's he's not uh, an innovator. He's just really good at elucidating old theology. Right? He's not an innovator at all, and that and that's that's why he's he's good at he's good at elucidating old theology and defending old theology. And uh, really didn't come up with anything new. I think his interpretation of 2 Peter 3, however, is. Uh, it was uh, maybe not exclusive to himself, but it was certainly a minority position, um, if not ahistorical. Uh, and so we'll look at that more as we go. But that's the interpretation uh, that, that I want to deal with today, is that 2 Peter 3.12 and the surrounding text there deals with the abolition of the Old Covenant, that the, um, the, the uh, heavens being dissolved and all of that, all of that is uh, emblematic of the, the temple being destroyed and the Old Covenant being moved out of the way in accord with the language of Hebrews 8.13 and so on. And uh, so I disagree with that interpretation. I'll, 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 I'll try to show everyone why I disagree with it. Um and my interpretation is that this is still forward looking, um, and it's looking to uh the final return of our Lord Jesus Christ, at which time there will be what the Puritans used to call a great conflagration, which is akin to this to the is akin is a cosmological uh analogate to the change we will experience at The resurrection, we do undergo a change at the resurrection, and it's an immediate change. Um, If if we're if we're still living by that point, there's a change that takes place where the believer goes. They don't get an entirely substantially new body, but they do go from having a sin nature being corrupted by remaining sin to not having any of that. And the great conflagration is a cosmological equivalent to that. It's the micro or macrocosmic equivalent to that where there is at the resurrection there is a massive change that occurs in relation to the cosmos at large um, you know this is spoken of it seems in 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 Romans 8 and I think we see it throughout the Old Testament as well and so I think that's what what Peter's referring to here in second Peter 3 and there's reasons for that earlier on in second Peter three that we're going to look at now so let's go ahead and do that and then we'll get we'll get, We'll do some exegesis, and then we'll get when we get down to the text, we'll look at it, we'll draw some conclusions, and then hopefully we'll get into some, uh, some interpretations of old, and then we'll, uh, you know, give a summary of the matter. So if you look at the beginning of second of Peter three, uh, he begins Peter begins writing. He says, "Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle." in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So in both epistles, he does that first and second Peter, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing first or knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Now, um, when Peter talks about the last days, I, I don't think there's any need to see the last days as being something future to us, right? So I think we're in the last days. I think Hebrews um, 1 is is clear about that. I don't think there's really any way to, to get around that. In some sense, we are in the last days, and the last days began uh, after the accomplishment of the work of Christ. So if you look at Hebrews 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, uh, the word there being uh, being eschatos, these last days, spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now, there, there are all sorts of other parallels that we could look at with regard to the last days as well, but it's not it's certainly not a stretch to, to say that we're in the last days. And I don't think Peter is saying anything... Uh, I don't think Peter is saying anything other uh, than that here. Um, the reality for the first century Christians as well as us today is that scoffers are going to come, right? So uh, is that preteristic? Sure. In, in the sense that this is a, a circumstance that, uh, that was the case in the first century as well as now. Um, and then he says, walking according to their own lusts. These are normal things that are going to happen from the first coming of Christ onward. And they're going to say, where is the Where is the promise of his coming? So that's what scoffers do, right? They're kind of mocking. They're saying, well, he's not here yet. Um, we, we're, you know, they, they scoff. That's what they do. Uh, and then they'll further say, Peter says, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, here is the part where I think Peter, it, Peter has the broader cosmological picture in, in front of him instead of just the more microcosmic Old Covenant. Uh, he's, I think he's looking at the whole of creation. Uh, think of Genesis 1 and 2. He's thinking of the creation proper. And um, and so the scoffers say, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing new under the sun. It's just this kind of this cyclic uh, you know, experience that we have. Where is your... Uh, Where is your Messiah? By the way, this promise is going to show up again, and we need to understand that verse 4 helps us to understand what this promise is when it shows up a second time. It's the promise of his coming, the promise of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word for coming there is uh, parousia. Verse 5, for this they willfully forget, Peter says. Now, this is Peter talking. It's not the, not the scoffers. He's saying the scoffers willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded by the water. Now, this is a clear reference to uh, not only the first creation, but the destruction or the deluge of that first creation during the flood of Noah. All right. So this is something. This is a situation that precedes the uh, the formation of the old covenant. So the the old covenant happened after this. Um, the earliest we could say uh, that the old covenant uh, was ratified would be at Abraham, and then it was uh, uh, further um, developed or it was uh, expanded with uh, the Mosaic covenant. And um, and But here, Peter clearly has in mind uh, the pre-deluge world and the, uh, the deluged world at the time of the Noaic flood. Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word. All right, so the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, the same word that preserved the creation prior to the deluge. That creation, the heavens and the earth, that creation is reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. All right, so we're here talking about a do, a, a, a judgment that is reserved for ungodly men. This seems to be a special divine judgment that is guaranteed upon the wicked, not one that could be referred to as temporal judgment uh, or typological judgment that may, in fact, wrap up true believers in in it uh, circumstantially uh, and affect us all, um, as the fall of Jerusalem did for 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 Christians at the time, they were displaced and um, persecution ensued uh, not not long afterwards, and so on. Um, so I don't I don't think that you know I don't think that it, it's talking about a judgment like that. It's not talking about a temporal judgment that that has to do with God utilizing providentially circumstances to execute you know immediate judgment uh, on sinners. I think it's talking about the judgment of God that is going to take place upon ungodly men. The language seems uh, seems to um, indicate that, in fact, that we could we could render it, you know, that, that this creation is reserved for fire until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so the question is, are there still ungodly men? Yes, there's still ungodly men. Has this destruction taken place yet? Um, no. Now, somebody could come back and say, well, it doesn't say all ungodly men. Yeah, but when the scriptures talk about judgment of of ungodly men um especially in the new testament and it doesn't specify in in other words it's a very general uh kind of like a blanket generalization ungodly men uh it's and and when it's associated with divine judgment that's talking about the the final judgment when men will be called before the tribunal verse 8 but beloved do not forget this one thing that the that with the lord One day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Now, if we're talking about a judgment that's coming in 70 AD, um, you know, a thousand years seems a little long in terms of a comparison. Uh, We're talking about a judgment that would be coming uh, within, you know, 20 to 30 years uh, from this point. If we were talking about 70 AD, but this is, this is, I, I believe this is, Clearly, speaking of something more forward-looking, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All right, and so um, this is, again, this is this is a very universal type language that um, you know the Lord is 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 tarrying in His judgment that all who are elect would in fact be effectually called and that they would all be brought to repentance. Moving on to verse 10, there, there's not there's not a whole lot, there's nothing here that would suggest that you know Peter's moving on to some different thought. I think everything that's that's here in verses one through nine ought to be carried with us uh, into verse 10 onward. and um, you know so when 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 the creations mentioned, Back here in, in verses five and six, I think that ought to influence how we see relevant themes in verses ten through thirteen. All right, uh, you know that's I think that's that's a that's a commonsensical approach to to a text like this. So in verse ten, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, if you're going to take the Old Covenant approach to this and say that this is all referring to the Old Covenant, um, you would have to say that the, the cosmological language is all reducible to the very narrow terms in application of the Old Covenant, which was to Israel alone. Um, but here, Peter seems to take pains to engage in cosmological, generalized, and universal Language. Um, verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, um, can I say... As a person that doesn't take the preterist approach to 2 Peter three, can I say that the new heavens and the new earth have already been established? Yes, uh, they have already been established. Is it the case that they are consummately established, such that they're they're perfectly established? There's nothing yet uh, to uh, there's nothing yet to occur with regard to them, uh, and and the answer would be no. Um, they're not consummately established. And the reason we know they're not consummately established is because the new heavens and the new earth, the reality of the new heavens and the new earth, coexist and overlap with uh, the old creation, the old earth and the old heavens. That old earth and old heavens that have been affected by sin uh, were party to the fall of man and thus were hindered and affected by, uh, by man's sin. We still live in that world. Uh, we live in the new covenant in which there is new heavens and new earth, inaugurated in the Lord Jesus Christ, albeit not consummated. That's true. We experience that life to an extent right now, uh, but we don't experience the fullness of that life right now because we're still living in the old world also. It's like we have one foot in the new covenant, one foot in the old, or one foot, maybe a better way to say it, one foot in the new uh, the new heavens and the new earth, one foot in the old heavens and the old earth, um, and and that's kind of an imperfect analogy because in some regards we're all. I mean, we want to say that we're entirely in the new covenant, have all the blessings and benefits of the new covenant. Yet, in terms of our experience, there's there's an overlap between the old creation and the and the new creation. Um, nothing changed ontologically about the old creation. You know, animal death continues to happen. Um, we continue to die and experience death, um, you know, man's sin continues to to rage uh, in some, at some times more than at others, and so, you, you know, but all, at, at the same time, do we have forgiveness of sins? Do we have regeneration? Do we have the fruits of the Spirit? Yes, yes, and yes, right? So there are these two realities that are simultaneously playing out, and, um, and upon the final return of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that latter reality, that new reality that we possess and that we participate in will be consummated at his coming. And I think that's what, that's what Peter's looking forward to. Those who want to read this passage preteristically, I think they make a good point. I mean, their, their concern is, hey, let's not relegate everything Peter's saying here to the future. Uh, as if this is a futurist text and nothing about this text has already occurred. I mean, new heavens and new earth, we already experience that. Hebrews 12 is very clear about this. Um, and and, and uh, in the last days, the last days, we're in the last days since the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So, But at the same time, I think Peter's looking forward to uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus and the redemption of the cosmos, which is couched in terms of this this sanctifying or renewing fire. You know, you read someone like David Chilton, and he says, you know, every time you look at, at these categories, specifically when you look at at elements and the dissolving of elements and and so on, it's always talking about the Old Covenant administration. Um, but if you look at all of, if you look at the whole text, 10 through 13, if you look at the whole paragraph there, and you start to realize, like, what's what's here in substance is also over here in Job, chapter 14. Um, and we know that Job is definitely talking about the resurrection. To me, that's very clear. Uh, it's clear the further on down the chapter you go. Um, but here, for example, in uh, in verse 10, on to verse 12, Job says, this is his, Uh, prayer of despond. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise. And what he's talking about there is that man dies, and it seems to be the case that man doesn't rise. Now, in a more lighter season of Job's interaction, Job 19, Job will confess the resurrection, that in his flesh he will see God. But here, this is his prayer of despond, and so he says, "As waters disappear from the sea, and a river becomes parched and dries up. So man lies down, man dies, and does not rise. There seems to be no resurrection. But, but then he says, he alludes to the fact that there will be a resurrection, as hopeless as verse 12a seems. He says, Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake. In other words, they will awake when the heavens are no more. Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake, nor be roused from their sleep. Men will be roused from their sleep. They will be raised from the dead uh, when the heavens are no more. Now, that's the similar similar language. Now, you have two themes coming together in Job 14. Resurrection and conflagration. Those two things are happening simultaneously in Job 14. <clears throat> and they happen... You know, relatively uh, near one another, and and one one precedes the other. Okay, so you have uh, man doesn't rise till the heavens are no more. When the heavens are no more, man will awake. All right, so there there seems to be this this tight relationship between those two things. Peter's doing the same thing here. He's using the same kind of language. Um, you know, especially you look at verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy con- conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells and comprehended within that. We know that resurrection is implied and, and all sorts of redemptive themes, Um, so we've looked at, we've looked at the text up to verse 13. I don't think we'll go beyond that. Um, I think what we can go ahead and do now, uh, with our remaining, I don't know, about 10 minutes we'll spend on this maybe, is we can look at some older interpretations. So the first, the first person, one of the first people that I mentioned when I started was John Owen. Um, John Owen says, and this is in a sermon that he preached, right? So who knows what I'm not even for certain at what point in time he preached this sermon. And I'm not even certain that that information is available. Mitch Chase has an article available, uh, on, unto him, which is, I think his website is just MitchChase.wordpress.com. John Owen on heavens and earth in Second Peter three, where he actually he disagrees with Owen as well, um, and uh, and he reviews, you know, he he picks out these two these two quotes from the sermon, which is essentially Owen's positionalization of himself in regard to the meaning of Second Peter three twelve, and um, and what he says is this: what John Owen says is this. The heavens and earth here intended in this prophecy of Peter, the coming of the Lord and day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men mentioned in the in the destruction of that heaven and earth, do all of them relate not to the last and final judgment of the world, but to that utter desolation and destruction that was to be made of the Judaical church and state. All right. Now I'm going to agree with Owen here in a minute, but I'm going to do so in a very qualified sense. He also says this in the same sermon. He says, Jesus will come, he will not tarry, and then the heavens and earth that God himself planted, the sun, moon, and stars of the Judaical polity and church, the whole old world of worship and worshipers that stand in their obstinacy against the Lord Christ shall be sensibly dissolved and destroyed. One of the things that John Gill does, and I believe he does this in the commentary on Matthew 24, is he says something like the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is an historical, typological um, uh, kind of uh, foreshadowing of the general judgment upon the final return of Christ. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. I think there's a, in the destruction of Jerusalem, the conflagration of the Jewish state there is a microcosmic picture of what will take place um, when it comes to the whole world upon the final return of Jesus. So, do I I disagree with Owen? Yeah, I disagree with Owen. Is there something correct in what he's saying? Yes, there is. You know, when we look at the, if you look at the architecture of the temple, you realize that it's designed to remind man of the cosmos Um, inside uh, on the ceiling there would have been stars Uh, there were trees throughout the temple there were all sorts of natural accoutrements or natural artistically uh, you know natural things artistically uh, portrayed um, in the temple and in the tabernacle before the temple was constructed and so the whole idea with the temple is to bring man's mind back to the garden and to the, to the dwelling place of God. And, uh, and the point of the temple, uh, especially and you see this on the veil of the temple where there are cherubim guarding the Holy of Holies, those cherubim relate to the cherubim that were put in front of the Garden of Eden guarding the Garden of Eden after man was exiled from the Garden of Eden. And the idea with the priest going beyond the veil is is a picture of God bringing man back into His presence. He goes beyond the veil, beyond the cherubim. He's let back into the presence of God, uh, where the cherubim are no longer keeping him out. The high priest goes beyond the cherubim, is let in, admitted into the garden, so to speak, back into the presence of God. Now that's what the that's what the temple is depicting. The temple is a is a picture. Of the broader redemptive history that the Lord is accomplishing and has accomplished for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, and so Owen's not entirely wrong to see conflagrative language like this as having relevance to the destruction of Jerusalem in seventy A.D. Um, it was that destruction of Jerusalem in seventy A.D. was emblematic and consummative of uh, of. The abolition of the old covenant and of man's condemnation under the law. All of that is moved out of the way, and now man has a way to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's brought back to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way the conflagration of Jerusalem relates to that is no longer is there a temple system, no longer is there a need for a Levitical priesthood, no longer, right? So all of that is done away with uh, in the providence of God. And um, and those who rejected Christ and and persecuted his people are also judged uh, as a, as a result. And and so there is definitely a microcosmic picture of the final conflagration there. So there's a there's a small conflagration that happens upon the Jewish nation state, and that has a broader redemptive significance because it's it's showing us the old covenant's been moved out of the way. Uh, we're brought to God not through the temple system or anything like that. That was never the case. But now that we have a way to God through Jesus Christ, that he's come, he's, he's bore the, the full revelation of God to us, um, we, we, we now come before God into the presence of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we don't need any of these typological human intercessory means to show us this because this has been fully revealed. All right. And and so that it, all of that has a broader redemptive significance. So I get why why Owen goes there. I just think that that Peter while we should have our mind on that that reality, Peter's also looking forward even from our perspective that there's going to be a a change of the cosmos in general that takes place. Romans 8 witnesses to this that there's going to be a redemption of the creation. Um Following from the work of Christ that occurs at the time of the resurrection, all right. Um. So, so where I disagree with John Owen is not seeing the broader. It's not in him seeing the broader redemptive significance of all this. It's it's really in him limiting Second Peter three to a a preterist understanding only, and not seeing it uh, in a more uh, broad uh, sense, locating it within the uh, the context of the whole over the redemptive narrative and so on. And he's also a minority in terms of, of, of the interpretation of this text. So um, John Calvin says, Heaven and earth, he says, shall pass away for our sakes. Is it meet then for us to be engrossed with the things of earth and not on the contrary to attend to a holy and godly life? The corruptions of heaven and earth will be purged by fire, he says, while yet as the creatures of God they are pure. What then ought to be done by us who are full of so many pollutions as to the word godliness, pitatibus, the plural number is used for the singular, except you take it as, a, as meaning the duties of godliness. Of the, of the elements of the world, I shall only say this one thing. This is key right here, that they are to be consumed, only that they may be renovated. So he's not saying that they ought to be consumed for the sake of destroying everything that God has, has made. The consumption or the conflagration spoken of in the scriptures with regard to the cosmos is one of renewal, not one of obviation and destruction. So he says, they're to be consumed that they may be renovated, their substance still remaining the same as it may be easily gathered from Romans 8:21 and from other passages. So the substance will remain the same, yet it will be changed and glorified and so on. It's just like our bodily resurrection. Our bodies will be the same, like we're going to be raised in these bodies. Our, the confession says that self-same body, right? Yet, they're going to be changed. They'll, they'll no longer be perishable, subject to the effects of sin, and so on and so forth. There'll be a bunch of, of change that takes place, even though in substance they will be the self-same body. Benjamin Keach says, Jesus shall never fall from heaven, nor be dissolved, but abide and continue when the heavens shall be no more. And thou, Lord, hast laid, and then he quotes um, Psalm 102, And thou, Lord, hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine own hands. They shall wax old, as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years fail not. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He also alludes to Hebrews 8.8. 8. John Gill on Second uh, Peter 3 says, the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. That's his rendering of the text that he's commenting on. He says, at whose coming and presence, Jesus, and from whose face the heavens and earth shall flee away, just as the earth shook and the heavens dropped and Sinai itself moved when God appeared upon it. This is a repetition uh, repetition of what is said in... I believe second or yeah, second Peter three ten. So two verses earlier, he's commenting on second Peter three twelve here. Exciting attention and exhorting and, and exhort to, and to the exhortation given. So he sees heavens and earth being a uh, a comprehension of of the cosmos as well. Um, so I think you know I think John Owen was in the minority there, uh, and uh, I disagree with his interpretation. I see what he's doing. Yeah, I see what he's doing. Um, and and. I I I am okay with it, with some of it. Um, the only thing I I don't think he goes far enough because I think the text is is not only is not only relevant for uh, the fulfillment of uh, of things related to redemption in the past, but it's also relevant to things that have yet to be fulfilled or things that have yet to come to pass. So Peter here is looking at the the renewal of the creation, uh, similar to Romans 8. You know, in Romans 8, we have the uh, renewal of creation mentioned as well. Uh, and that is that comes to us in uh, chapter 8, verses 18 through 24, specifically... Uh, verse twenty one, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the son of uh, of the children of God. Uh, that liberty of the children of God, there that you see, um, corresponds to this revealing of the sons of God, which I take to be uh, the uh, taking place at the uh, at the resurrection, because that is related to the glory which shall be revealed in us. All right, so. Uh, this re- this renewal of the creation that takes place by means of conflagration happens in concursion with and in relation to our bodily resurrection that occurs upon the final return of Christ and I think that's what Peter's getting at just starting at first Peter or second Peter 3 and working our way down to the text in question I think we see that that Peter has a broader cosmological scope than the the, the preterist the preterist leaning. So with that said, hopefully this was a, uh, oops, oops, oops. Hopefully this was a helpful um, video on, on this, on this topic. Uh, If you don't agree with it, hopefully it at least got you thinking about it. Um, If you liked it, give me a thumbs up, share it with your friends. God bless. Have a good day.